Hello, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we dissect all different types of performance, training, nutrition, and general fitness questions so you can improve your everyday adventures. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not talking on here, I am hopefully outside doing one of those everyday adventures and or writing about said everyday adventures. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach. Awesome. So, Peter, we have another Q&A episode up today. So, first of all, what's what's new? What's exciting? Well, this week, um, and actually while we've been down in California, um, or while we were in California, I uh, have been using the Yoga Tune-Up Alpha Ball, which is... Uh, sort of a massage ball, but it's a little bigger. If you think like a bocce ball or maybe like a, a large softball, I'm trying to think of the diameters of softball. I think it's six and eight. That's uh, bugging me that I can't remember softball. the size of softballs. Yeah. No, there's two different ones. Uh, but anyhow, this is a massage ball that's bigger than a lacrosse ball. It's again, think bocce ball or bigger, uh, but still very soft. So it sort of can grab your skin, but it doesn't like, it's not really abrasive, but still has a little bit of firmness underneath the softness and so it's a it's a really really nice massage ball but it's also still portable you know compared to maybe a a foam roller so we didn't end up bringing any sort of massage ball or foam roller uh so i I had been had my eye on this one but molly limits how many mobility and massage tools i guess i i get you only need so many balls yes fair enough um so anyhow that's my one thing Yep, yep. And I actually have to say, I really liked it. I, I wasn't really sure about it because it's sort of an odd size. It's almost a little bit too big for kind of getting into your leg muscles. And I've been trying to roll my legs a bit more. I actually ended up using a wine bottle a couple times, which I would not recommend as your typical solution. But when you're on the road, that's, you know, it's, it's better than nothing. Uh, But I found it was really good on my back the other morning. Just had one of those nights where, you know, slept on my back wrong and my, it was just achy in the morning. So I laid on that, rolled around on it for a bit on my back and it felt like perfect along my spine. Yeah. And it's actually not bad once you figure it out for the legs. I would say it's actually better. Like most people find a lacrosse ball, like quite hard. Um, I don't mind them, but, um, these are actually, once you get sort of balanced on it and, and sort of figure out how you're going to brace yourself on using your elbows and your other leg, uh, it should work okay for your legs. Well, maybe your legs are just bigger than mine. Well, I doubt that very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if anyone saw my Instagram, my, my calves are getting to Jeremy Powers' uh, level of calf goals, as I, as I said on there. I've been riding my bike a lot more lately, and that tends to make my calves pop a bit, so... It's definitely been becoming an issue. It's harder to find jeans that don't get stuck on my calves. I am definitely not known for my muscular tone. You are um, not. So I love you very much. But pros and cons. <laughs> but. All right. My one thing um, is actually, and I mean, I've mentioned it several times on the show at this point, so I apologize if you're getting sick of hearing about it. It's patience at this point. Um, My knee has been feeling a lot better. I'm back to running, but, you know, I've been out a few times and having no problems on the run, and it's so tempting to just keep running because I really very much miss going, uh, you know, far, going long, being out for, you know, more than 40 minutes in in a run session, Um, and it's frustrating. 
but I keep trying to tell myself, you know, the reason I've set myself back several times now is because I was too impatient with it, went out, pushed it a little bit too hard, you know, in just the wrong circumstance and, you know, set myself back a full month at this point, probably 10, eight to 10 weeks I've set myself back because I just kept pushing it, um, thinking it was recovered when it wasn't. So yeah, patience is my, my one thing at the moment. It's a good one. It's very, it's not materialistic. We don't want our one things to all be sort of things to buy. So I, I really like that. I think that is the answer to a lot of things, right? We all, um, want to get fast, want those 20 minute time trials or those body weight goals or whatever really quickly. Right. And, and the answer is always, you know, try something for a period of time and it either improves or it doesn't. And that gives you information, right? So. Exactly. All right. So let's dive into our Q and A's for today. I'm really excited about this first one because it's something that we haven't ever talked about on the podcast, but it's something that I think is really, really interesting. Um, so Katie asked, how can we be both eco-friendly and optimized for sport? Uh, I'm really curious whether or how recommendations, you know, for eco-friendly diets work with athletic diets and in general, how can athletes minimize their environmental impact? Um, so typically, and she even pointed this out, the, you know, go-to answer is bike commute to work or walk commute to work. Um, and that's, uh, you know, obviously that's a great one, but it's definitely the tip of the iceberg. I mean, as racers, you know, a lot of the times you can literally be flying around the world, um, you know, which is not the most eco-friendly thing. You know, you're buying tons of gear, you know, it's not, there are not that many companies making sustainable cycling gear. I actually can't think of any, to be totally honest that are making any major eco environmental claims on their, you know, jerseys or bib shorts or anything. So if anyone knows of any companies or brands that are doing good stuff in that, uh, definitely let us know. There are some that make, you know, little seat bags from recycled tubes and stuff like that. And that's awesome, but that does not really come close to offsetting, you know, flying to Europe for a bike trip. Um, which actually my first thought on this is around that uh, racing element. And Peter, I think you can speak to this a little bit too. Um, people get these really big bucket list races in their head, right? Like the Leadville 100 is the mountain bike race you have to do if you're going to be a mountain bike guy or, you know, the Whiskey 50 in Arizona. And those races are super rad. But I mean, especially if you're not, you know, an elite racer going for the win, what about looking for a hundred mile mountain bike race that you can actually just, you know, drive to that's, you know, within a couple hours of your house that you can maybe throw a couple buddies in your car and go, go together or do a bike packing trip instead. Yeah. I think there's a lot of like bike racing doesn't make sense at the best of times. Right. And you can take it's an true. environmental look, you can take a financial look, um, you know, these races happen in some cases, you know, in, countries or states or areas that you know don't have great situations for the people there so yeah it, it, it's a tough I guess ethical or, or I don't know it, it's it, each person sort of has to find their way with it right I know there's been several pro cycles I think Phil Gaiman actually talked about just being sort of over it um, and I'm trying to remember there was a female cyclist who I remember hearing her talk about 
just how, you know, you get new jerseys and new bottles and all this stuff each season, if not every race and some of the bigger teams, right. And the buses and yeah, it's, I don't know, it's a traveling circus, right. But there's so much stuff like that. There's yeah. if you're a musician or there's all sorts of things. Sure. But from the amateur level, you can definitely dial it back and be super eco-friendly by racing locally, picking races that are close to home, picking races that, you know, actually do talk about sustainability and stuff like that. I mean, it's a minor thing, but a lot of races, like I just signed up for the North Face um, Endurance Challenge in Bear Mountain, New York in May, and you have to sign a waiver saying that you understand that it's a cupless race. So you have to race with your own cup because they're not using paper cups since, you know, A, it creates less waste, and B, that way they're not getting tossed on the trails or anything. Um, so I thought that was super interesting. It's cool to see some races kind of trending in that direction. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it coming. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I've always, I guess I, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert by any means, but I think personally where I've sort of come to peace with this is at least for the time being is, yeah, just trying to, you know, when we go to the grocery shop, we don't, you know, we have our reusable bags and if we end up with some bags, just they're in the house or someone got them, you know, we try and reuse those bags at the grocery store and, you know, reusing bottles and cleaning bottles. And, um, what else do we do? Like even just bikes, like I think like the bike itself is a good way to travel, but you know, a lot of us get new bikes constantly. Um, so even just holding onto that, which is crazy to say, you know, the bike companies have to make money and stuff, but sometimes just even holding on to things a little while longer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to that gear note, um, the couple things I did want to mention is, while I can't really think of any sustainable clothing companies making new stuff, um, there is nothing wrong with buying used gear. Um, you know, maybe you don't want to use a pair of bib shorts. I'm a little questionable about that. But places like Pro's Closet and Protested, which is where I send a lot of my gear when I'm done with it, a lot of them actually have new and unused stuff available at like a fraction of the price. So you save money, but you're also, you know, just avoiding buying something new that had to be manufactured for you. So a lot of teams, you know, have a ton of extra team kit, like Peter said, at the end of a season. So a pro who's shifting teams or, you know, new sponsors come on, new kit design, whatever, um, they'll send their gear to a place like Protested or Pro's Closet. So you can buy, you know, a kit that's never been worn for 20% of what it cost. Um, and, you know, boom, you get a new kit and you're, you know, being pretty environmentally friendly with that. They also have bikes and, you know, all the other little gear and stuff. So buying secondhand, I think, is, you know, one really good way of reducing your, your footprint there. Um, and then the other thing is just within the food side of things, I actually wrote a big article on ways you can ethically eat over on outside. So we'll link to that. Um, and a couple of the ways were, you know, kind of the obvious ones like growing some of your own food, you know, you can pretty easily, even in a small apartment, be, you know, planting your own cilantro, tomatoes, little things like that. And it's, it's minor, but it does make a difference, especially when we're trying to eat healthily, but also, you know, trying to be ethical about it. Um, buying produce that's in season and local, again, you know, really just reducing carbon footprint. And what we do is we actually buy a full cow, which is not a vegan-friendly option, obviously, um, but we get that from a local farmer, you know, grass-fed, 
um, pasture raised, etc. Just really good quality meat, and that way we have it for the whole year. It's cheaper and it's you know much more sustainable, ethical, etc. Than buying just the cheap stuff off the shelf. Well, if, especially with that because it it doesn't travel anywhere, right? Like it's all um, butchered and stuff locally. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the last thing on food is just really DIYing your own stuff. Um, obviously the wrappers from bars and gels and everything add up. So not, you know, using them when you can avoid it really helps things like the rice bars. You know, we all know those, um, and they make these really cool, like beeswax cloths that you could actually wrap a rice bar in really easily that are reusable. So you're not even using a saran wrap or parchment paper or anything. So just kind of thinking about those options. So I think that's pretty much what I have for that question. And I'll link to that article on ethical eating as well. All right. Next one up. Peter, I think this one's pretty much for you here. Uh, I'm targeting a hilly race in July and I'm relatively new to training. So should I be focusing on climbing? Yeah, the all, uh, all important question of how do I get faster at climbs? Uh, and I think the important bit is that, you know, the, the better you get at cycling and for many of us, even experienced cyclists, you know, with a busy schedule, the reality is we just need to ride more, um, which makes sense on some level, but we all hit some sort of barrier with time that we can't ride more often. Right. So, uh, I think the short answer would be, I would definitely focus on sort of general preparation, um, what we've talked about before is sort of those bus bench workouts where we're just sort of showing up every day and practicing cycling, just like your kids go to soccer practice or hockey practice. You're going to show up and do your cycling practice every day and you're working on different elements. You know, that could be cadence. There could be some, you know, light interval training. There could be some longer endurance training. Um, one leg. I love, love the clipping in and clipping out and sort of interacting with your bike in different ways. Um, but I, I think a lot of us miss that that just general preparation, just becoming a pretty good all around cyclist sort of prepared for cycling, which includes hills. Uh, and then in the, you know, the weeks to months ahead of that event, if that's the event or the tour that you're really getting ready for, then you could certainly do some specific preparation. Uh, again, if you're, if you're generally fit and have been rolling pretty well and making improvements, which you would, again, if you have sort of a, a good sort of general preparation plan, then you can really focus in, right? The weather is probably going to be better, assuming you live in some area that doesn't have great weather, where you can maybe get to a similar climb and do some simulation and get a feeling for those efforts and the similar durations. <clears throat> With climbing, for sure, you're going to have to get used to, you know, shifting and cadence and things like that. So again, that's something on the trainer. Uh, that you could practice shifting, which is now less less common with all our smart trainers and Zwifting, um, but trying to set up a way that you can play with cadence and play with shifting and be really smooth is going to help when you get to those hills. Um, but like I said, if, as long as you're getting fitter with your general preparation plan, which you should be, um, then you're going to be ready to climb for sure. But uh, basically just try and keep getting fitter, keep increasing your loading, taking off weeks, taking off days. And you should be ready. All right. A couple follow-ups here. Um, I mean, like being a climber, like being a sprinter, when we're not talking about the pro ranks, and I mean, 
honestly, like I've never heard of like a mountain biker being referred to as a climber or a great descender or anything like that. I mean, obviously that exists, but you wouldn't hire someone on a mountain bike team as a climber. Like that's a very, very specific to pro road racing kind of characteristic. Right. Do you think it even, do you think it's like not possible, but do you think that's a thing that you would even do or consider as an amateur cyclist, like trying to be a climber or does that, does that exist? Well, it's interesting, right? Like it, it reminds me now that the other important thing about climbing is certainly the weight, right? And, and we all stress over this and, and generally you're going to see smaller people tend to really like the climbs and the bigger people like to really smash it on the, the flats. Um, and, and that's a reality, but I also know lots of bigger people who are pretty good at climbing, right? They have pretty solid power numbers. Um, and they've worked on the things like the shifting and the pacing and, and they've gone and practiced climbs a bit. Um, but just because you're bigger doesn't mean that you're bad at climbs. You might have to choose your battles and you might have to make sure that the people who are good at climbs are hurting a bit going into the climb um, by going harder on the flats. But I think the nice thing, um, I don't want to get too far afield here, but the the key is that the nutrition is good. So just your, your fruits, vegetables, meats, getting to bed on time. Um, and trying to take care of that is something that, again, in that general preparation period, it's not the, the week before or the night before that you're doing this special race nutrition that's going to make you fly up the climbs, right? It's, it's just being healthy and happy and, and having the basic, good basic nutrition. Um, where else were we going with that? Or can you be a good climber? Um, I, I think so. Again, like I think it's just people who climb a lot, in my opinion, are going to be good. Um, there is a caveat with that, I think, that I've been thinking about more based on a, we just did an interview with uh, David Roche, um, who's a running coach, actually. And he got me thinking a bit more, too, about, and so it's something that I've incorporated, but I get a lot of pushback from people who want to be climbers when we're doing intervals on the flat because they hate it because their power numbers maybe aren't as good, their, their coordination, because it's, it's less to push against, right? A lot of people like to do their intervals on climbs because they have something to push against. The cadence drops. Completely agree. Right? But I've always felt that, like, if you can shift and coordinate that, pretty good wattage it might not be quite as high but you get a lot of power and speed skill out of that and i think that does translate back over um so hat tip to david on that for just for sort of like getting me thinking about that process and the why for why you would want to do that but that gets back to this idea of general preparation where you're becoming a good all-around cyclist you're learning to shift you're learning to use your cadence range um, you're doing intervals on flat you're doing some hill climbing um, you know, it, it's a mix of things. Mm -hmm. um, also, side note, uh, if someone asks you what kind of cyclist you are, road or mountain or cyclocross, <laughs> unless you're like in the Tour de France, please do not say I'm a climber. Uh, like, super domestic. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, just don't. That's, that's bad, bad etiquette. Um, okay, next, next question on that topic. Um, with, uh, you know, a lot of people are stuck inside right now. We're riding the trainer. Um, where do you, where do you fall with the raising the wheel? Oh, for climbs. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, we've, I've done that in my past. I've, I, I don't think it's really like, I guess you could make an argument for it. Um, they have the kicker climb now that sort of raises that and sort of simulates climbs. They say, um, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think you're going to get sort of a similar 
body position maybe. So I, I think you could definitely like while you're maybe doing intervals or something once a week, I don't think it would hurt. Um, I was going to say from a bike fit standpoint, like if you know you're going to have a really hilly race, I think it's probably a good idea to spend some time if you're not able to ride outside at all in that slightly raised position, just so you know where the saddle's hitting. You can really see if it's going to be a comfortable climbing bike. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I don't think I would chastise anyone for doing that. Um, I, I think my biggest concern would just be that they are able to ride and not fall over. Uh, I mean, just that they're riding, right? Like that all the, the mission is being completed. Um, and, and I think you could probably make a compelling argument to mix it up. Like get off your bike, put the te- old textbook under your wheel, get back on your bike. There's probably a, a benefit from just getting on and off. Um, and then just having a bit of a mix in that saddle position. So then you're going to do your three by 10 minutes threshold with the wheel elevated, get off your bike, stretch your hips, take the textbook out. I mean, I, I think that in the name of variety and this sort of general preparation, I think great. I mean, really lifting that textbook might be more upper body than most cyclists do in a week. Yeah, hip hinge, squat down. Yeah. Just slamming cyclists all over the place right now. Um, my last question on hills. Um, I actually wanted to talk. You've had a good tip that I've I've been with you, obviously, on a lot of hills on the bike. And the shifting is a huge thing. Um, so I'm wondering if we can kind of talk through a couple of tips for shifting while climbing. Cause I mean, you just mentioned shifting while climbing is very important. Yes. But you know, talk us through a little bit about why it matters and some tips. Yeah. I don't know. I think this has been a, a pet project of mine for years. I mean, we used to have triples on mountain bikes and I can, I would go around and yell big ring, middle ring, small ring like to try and help people sort of figure out the shifting right and it's less complex now that most bikes are single ring um but it still begs the question of like when you shift and how to shift effectively um i think if you've used a a standard car like driven a standard car you have some sort of idea as far as like the relation of rpm and clutching and when to shift and shifting smoothly Um, i wish bikes would like scream at you um, like when you miss shift with a clutch, but they I wonder, do. Sort I wonder of, if you I could, guess. you could make that. Well, I guess they sort of cl- like, they make a lot of, like you can make your bike shift under load and it would be grumpy. Um, but really the idea is that you sort of have this cadence range. So say, you know, 80 to hundred RPM, you can pedal out effectively. Um, and so when you hit the bottom of that range, you know, you're hit coming into a climb, then you need to shift easier. Right. So what that's going to mean is you're going to need to back off for a second clutch to then shift to an easier gear and then vice versa. You're going to get to the top of the climb and you're going to spin out the gear. This is where people screw up and I yell at Molly all the time. But this is one of my things is spinning out the gear. And this is how you like really drop people is if you can spin out the gear really well, then you drop people because people will shift to a harder gear way too early. So the key is you're at 80 RPM, you're climbing, we can see it, we're starting to crest. You don't shift harder and go to like 60 RPM. You go from 80 RPM to 100 and you do it really explosively if you really are embracing this spinning at the gear. And that instantly accelerates you way faster than the person who's trying to shift and who has had to back off. Then you're going faster and it makes logical sense because you've spun out your gear and you're going faster. You can back off for a second, but you're going faster. So then you shift harder and now you have a new gear at say 80, 90 RPM that you can then accelerate again. So what's happened is you've gotten to go faster for longer 
by sh by spinning out the gear. So it's sort of crazy, but the key is just like try and use the gear you're in and single speed riders or riding a single speed can really teach you this, just spinning it out for all you're worth and then arrow tucking because that's all you have. Um, but, but that's sort of a critical element and, and just learning to shift on a climb, which is fine to do, but learning to sort of back off and give yourself room to breathe and get into a better gear. Um, but it's ultimately the same as a standard car, just trying to not be in that like bogging down gear where the engine's going to stall, which is you at 40 RPM. Okay. Me at 40 RPM is my happy place. Right. And, and, and that might be fine, right? Like it, it's not that 90 is this magical number for certain cyclists. It might be lower. Um, we talked about Molly's calves. So for more muscular rider, <laughs> it may be lower. Uh, typically smaller people like Molly do not have such a, a low cadence, but it does happen and it could be discipline specific too. Um, and it's not bad to be able to pedal at 60 RPM. If you were a single speed rider, I, I've often a we have a single speed episode that's been requested and and we want to do soon so if you're a single speed person great um, but i've often or I, i've always been wanting someone who's really wanting to train but be a single speeder um, because i do think that you could do a lot of like over geared and under geared practice um, to be really prepared right so you could grind really effectively at 60 rpm and then you could also spin at like 140 rpm like a track rider um all that to say, you just want to optimize your gear by shifting. Solid. I don't know. It, it's a really nebulous thing to yeah. explain, right? But you just want to keep yourself moving as efficiently as possible. Um, and again, I think the if you have driven a standard car, that's like the best thing when someone's done that because they understand on some level what a smooth shift and matching a gear to the terrain and stuff it is. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to throw out my low RPM issue is definitely caused by my dad who is a much larger man um, and I learned how to ride by riding with him uh, not like when I was seven I'm talking about like when I was 20 this is this is like a relatively recent thing um, and he just he's a masher so I actually like would take a it was like a point of pride for me to go up a hill and not shift down because my dad wouldn't so that's a hundred percent just like a learned behavior that's really freaking hard to get over. But I think I'm I think I'm getting better. Yeah, I guess the other piece too is standing, right? Being able to stand effectively is really important because that's what gives you that acceleration. So if you come into a climb and then you hit eighty RPM, you can stand, accelerate up to whatever, 85. And then as you're sitting down, you can shift easier. Mm -hmm. And so you get this like almost second or this other gear that you can stand up when it gets too low. And then as you're sitting down, it buys you that dead spot. So, or it lets you keep your gear stomp, 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 and you're over like a, a short riser, right? So that's standing, which sounds odd because any cyclist is going to tell you, I, I often ask people and I, I say, do you stand up? And they say, oh yes, all the time. But standing like you're on a trainer where your bike doesn't move side to side is not standing. Like that's not, you're not going to use that on like a 20% grade on a climb or something. Um, the bike needs to move underneath you and you need to find balance mm -hmm. on each side of that pedal stroke. Use your arms, right? So it's very common not to see people be very balanced with that, very efficient with it, um, which is free speed. I always say it's like a second set of muscles once you figure out how to do that. Um, but yeah, shifting is very very nebulous. You just got to, and, and I think that gets back to the heart of this question, that general preparation period, riding a variety of terrain 
is going should take care of that mm-hmm. right cyclists usually find their way when they don't it's because they've been only doing one thing you know or, or one route you know only riding with one type of person on one type of road right so mm-hmm. definitely gets back to that variety and getting some feedback um, yeah if you can do some drills like everyone i hate cadence drills so much but so good for you um so just even 30 seconds where you just take the gear you're in and spin it up as high as you can go or even shift one easier and try and accelerate with that easier gear um which at first you're like wow accelerate in an easier gear that's weird but yeah that's what you're doing so like try and get to 140 rpm and i always say to kids like we want to look cool while we're doing 140 rpm so smooth right you want to look like it's not a big deal Mm -hmm. uh, but you're like really holding on to that peak cadence um, that's really, so you, if you throw that, if someone like Molly were to throw that in her warm up three times, yeah. uh, and this can be outside, it's very, you know, it, it's not hard to throw this into really any terrain. Um, then what should happen then is that because you've hit 140 RPM with pretty high effort, your heart rates up, you're activated. Then when you go back and you're at your easier pace, what I would guess is if Molly usually averages 72 RPM, because that's what she always averages, uh, she might average 81 or so. And then over a course of weeks and months, we might see Molly normalize into 80 to 100 RPM. Yeah. <laughs> Next <Shifting>. question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, we'll let you know how that goes. I will be dragged to 80 RPM kicking and screaming anyway yeah and i always say like i don't care what the number is like we don't most of us don't have cadence things right but as long as you look smooth like if i'm running into you at the bottom of a climb or at the top of a climb or during a climb or there's missed shifts or broken chains then you know or you're not great at climbing you miss brakes and accelerations in the group like those are all you have like a shifting cadence speed skill issue there for sure mm-hmm. i'll also maybe just throw to the cadence thing it's a pain in the ass and crits when you're a really low rpm rider you burn so much energy on every well you just never like thing. you could never catch an acceleration if you're sitting there at like geared for like 70 rpm rolling along at like 40 if someone attacks like that you would you're gonna it's gonna be like a car in fifth trying to like right it's just like you can hear that engine going like it just costs you so much i mean we just won't it's just impossible right like it's like starting it it's like starting in third gear or like you know you're in your big like everyone's done that right like you stop at a a stop sign and you've just come down a downhill and then you go to start and you're like oh i'm in a heart right that's right so that's what that's like only at every single corner yes and now on the flip side you've just like crits um just riding in a big group where you're getting pulled along quickly and then thinking a little bit about your cadence trying to match the cadences around you um that's gonna pull it up like often mountain bikers who just get into some group rides on the road and maybe some crits and stuff like it only takes a few times and you figure it out right Mm -hmm. both your brain tries to match the cadence of those around you but i think you get dropped enough times you're going to figure out you need to pedal faster right so i think that's a great again variety Mm -hmm. not just fat biking or something right yeah. All right. Next question is from Erica. So she is a 52 year old consummate athlete. I love her laundry list of sports she does. Um, she's been running, she does road marathons, trail races, all kinds of lanes. She mountain bikes, hikes, does yoga, cross country skiing. 
um, just variety of physical movement. But then she says, despite all this, I have low bone density and have suffered through several fractures. Um, she's read tons on bone health, but points out that so much of it is, you know, the super general uh, st- advice based around elderly people with bone density issues. So it's things like lift a can of soup as your weight training, um, that kind of thing and prescribing light exercise um, when she's already doing all of this stuff and still kind of dealing with it. Um, and, at, you know, 52 years old, that's you know pretty young to be dealing with some bone density stuff. But it's certainly something we see with a lot of athletes at this point. Well, I mean, we do trend in that endurance direction, right? So it's very common and I think very difficult, especially as we get older and older, I think is like 25 or something for, for women, if I remember right, where it gets very difficult to increase bone mass mm-hmm. and muscle mass for that matter. And it's not honestly a lot different for for men. Um, that said, I, I wouldn't say that I am by any means a, a bone health expert. Um, but what I do know is like, if it were me or potentially, I guess when it is me as a smaller person, um, it's I probably I, you right now. And I'm sure you've done elements of this. And I think you're probably a, a, a bigger expert on this topic than we are. Um, but I would definitely look into like a, they're a functional medicine doctor. So someone who's using, you know, I guess for lack of better terms, Western and Eastern medicine type tactics, um, just to get some sort of test retest. Um, and there's a few different ones, whether you're actually doing bone scans, which again, it sounds like you're doing, um, but also maybe some blood markers and stuff and just seeing if you can just sort of assess things like inflammation, um, some of your minerals, some of your vitamins, obviously sort of like your D and calcium would be first and maybe K come to mind. Um, but someone who can get in there and sort of help you. And then you can sort of go after just like we would with any training challenge, you know, okay, well you want to do this certain diet. Let's say you're going to do sardines and, um, some greens. I think it's like sardines and two cups of dark leafy greens is into that like recommended. I think it's like 800 micrograms. Don't quote me on that. It's something like that. Whatever it's measured in 800 is the number um, for calcium. And, and then we know these foods are just generally healthy, right? So say you're going to do that and then you're going to do a strength training program that's going to load your bones. Uh, over a series of months and just see, you know, okay, is this helping things? Is this maintaining things? Is this, you know, how is this changing? Um, that, that would be sort of how I would go after that and how I've seen it sort of assessed. Um, there are, again, the reason I say also Western medicine is I'm the worst of anyone who just, who, no drugs, never. Um, but there are definitely some drugs that I, that are, have been fairly helpful. And again, you'd have to look at the pros and cons with them, but as far as helping add bone mass back, bone density back. Um, So I would definitely want to look at that too and just see what your options are. Again, whether you go with it or not, it's just good to sort of do that and then to have someone working with you. So hopefully you can can do that. If you you are having trouble finding people, definitely reach out. And there's a couple networks and stuff that I'm familiar with that might help. Um, But it might be something that you haven't necessarily looked as far as functional medicine doctor. Yeah, and to add on to that, um, so... A, completely agree with you on the functional medicine doctor. I mean, we've talked about this at length before, but the blood work and blood markers and stuff, I'm always shocked by, 
you know, how much information is in that that we maybe just wouldn't have known about, like vitamin D levels, stuff like that. You can be getting outside and eating a super solid diet and still be low on some of this stuff. Um, I think I had just heard something about runners in general, like tend to be low on vitamin D, even with a fair amount of sun exposure. And bearing in mind, we all wear a ton of sunscreen and hats and all that jazz now, you know, stuff like that can really make a huge difference. Um, so that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, and then, you know, again, like looking at your list, you're definitely much more on the endurance sport side of things, which obviously is awesome. And I'll link to a bunch of studies uh, in the show notes here. Um, you know, most studies say that exercise in general, including endurance sport, is better than nothing as far as preventing bone loss. Um, elite female, there was one study done on elite female athletes versus non-athletic premenopausal women and the premenopausal women who weren't athletic had lower bone density than the elite athletes, um, which actually kind of surprised me to be totally honest. Um, but I think that the population they looked at was more of like a 5k distance runner versus a marathoner. Um, so all of your, all of your sports tend to be pretty endurance oriented. So I would definitely add in some non-soup can weightlifting, like some actual strength well, training. Well, it depends. Sometimes you might need to start there, right? If there has mm-hmm. been fracture or something. But, yeah. But you oh. want progressive, right? And Yeah. Um, and I mean, on the note of the several fractures, to me, that kind of came back to my my first, uh, my, my one thing this week of patience. I mean, I think we've seen, we have a couple of people we know who have been injured a lot in the past couple of years. Um, and it seems that every time they get back, they're almost immediately after they're back re-injured. Um, so I think, you know, just especially as we all get older, a little more patience, a little bit more time off um, when we are injured would probably go a long way. Um, yeah, it's definitely tough. And, and thinking about some of the, the recent sort of friends and stuff who have gotten hurt, it's definitely... Um, you know, charging pretty hard and, you know, maybe not adapting to events, Molly, um, <clears throat> before you jump into them. Right. Um, but certainly that's that sleep piece is definitely big and it's very hard to do, but making sure, you know, I use Garmin connect, um, and it, I got my watch on there, but you could certainly just monitor that those sleep hours, right. And that rolling average should be in that sort of eight plus or minus one, um, range right and that sleep is a big piece there's there's great evidence for that um you know i know i feel way better when i get all that sleep and and things are rolling pretty well Um, but then that inflammation is sort of the other one too the big one Um, and Mm -hmm. that can come from everything from you know coffee and training and alcohol and you know just sugary foods and stuff like that so there's definitely for most of us, there's some room to sort of improve there, at least on a on an average sort of basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the one last piece of good news is, um, given your age, you're probably kind of coming into this this time. But um, I have a couple studies that show that post menopause. Um, athletics tends to influence bone density less than it would have um, before menopause. So the endurance stuff will be less, I guess, bad for your bones, for lack of a smoother way of saying that. Um, So yeah, we'll link to a bunch of studies in the show notes and, you know, definitely hit us back if there's any other studies that you spot that would have information for other athletes like yourself who are in that same boat. I think that's a really, really good question. 
Um, and to kind of cap off this episode, just a couple more kind of cool studies that came out. Um, you know, we're we're in the month of the hustle, we'll, we'll say, or this few weeks after the New Year. So everyone's kind of getting on their New Year's resolutions and stuff. And this is the time of year where everyone's, you know, getting up, becoming a morning person or hitting the gym for the 5 a.m. spin class or doing all of those things. Um, but there is uh, a new study just came out that shows that sleeping less than six hours a night may increase cardiovascular risk. Um, so this is just kind of our PSA to say, hey, make sure you're sleeping enough to, you know, stay healthy, stay functioning as a human being and a happy human being and to be recovering from your training. I mean, I don't know, Peter, maybe you can speak to how many of your clients could probably benefit from more sleep versus maybe even more time on the bike. I mean, I just did one of the big focuses while we were down here was a bunch of sort of work items that we wanted to get down. Um, or I, I should say while we've been in California. Um, and, and the one thing was sort of the handbook for new coaching clients and existing coaching clients. And I think I underlined the word sleep and it's the only underlined because I don't underline in my writing very often. Um, but it's the only underlined word and it's underlined, I think five times in this like relatively short document. Um, and it is, it's just so important and it's, it's very, very hard to do, right? It's these, it's a lot of times it's type A people who are, are pursuing these endurance events and, you know, we want to work hard and show up more and show up more. Um, and, and I think you have to see it in action, right? And that's sort of the way to test this is, you know, don't believe just some random study, just try for a, a month, you know, figure out a way, okay, can I train just half an hour in the morning instead of 90 minutes or, you know, just reduce the number of sessions or something, right? Like sometimes the only way to get the training in is early, then it's, you know, maybe an earlier bedtime or a nap here or there. Um, we have an episode with Amy Bender that goes into a bunch of sleep strategies um, and also the peak performance with uh, Brad. Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Right, uh, which is another really great episode with some good topics, but one of their big takeaways is definitely sleep as well. Um, yeah, and you just, I, I know for me, it's, it took me probably way too long in my career to figure it out, but if I don't sleep, if I'm feeling tired, it's just, I just spin easy. And then, you know, whatever, move on with the plan or, or do the workout the next day, depending on the situation. Um, and it always ends up better in the end, right? Like it's, it might mean that the week takes me eight days or it might mean that I miss a workout. Um, but it, it's much better than, you know, two or three weeks of just crummy workouts of, that may have well been missed, right? You actually hit the intensity or actually hit, you know, a decent workout. Exactly. So those of you listening to this in the evening, get on the getting to bed train um, and let us know. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, on the consummateathlete.com um, and let us know if you'd be up for another sleep episode. I know the Amy Bender one was two years ago now um, and I will admit the sound quality was appallingly bad on that one. Just really bad connection through no fault of anyone um, but it was such good information that we put it out anyway, but we'd totally be up for doing another episode kind of along those lines. So let us know if you're interested in that. And 
As always, uh, we'd love to hear more questions from you. You might have noticed we're getting more frequent with the Q&A episodes. Um, they're, you know, they've been really well received. We love doing them. So, you know, keep your questions coming. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Molly J. Herford. Peter is at Peter Glassford on both of those. Or the contact form over on consummateathlete.com is also a great place to find us. Um, and one last mention. Shred Girls, Lindsay's Joyride pre-orders are still open. Um, the book comes out May 7th. I would love it if you guys pre-ordered. If you pre-order, email me, message me, get in touch with me, and I will send you stickers and a postcard. They're really cute frame stickers. I'm super excited about this. I hope you guys are too. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone and it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.